This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. Uh, We're going through a study of 1 Corinthians, if you're new. And uh, so today we are in chapter 10, and we just cover a section at a time. Man, the next number of weeks are just going to be interesting. I mean, we're talking about dining with demons today. Uh, We've got women in head coverings and worship coming up. We've got speaking in tongues coming up. We've got all kinds of topic, or at least the topic. We've got all kinds of topics uh, coming up in the book of Corinthians. So it's about to get, well, it's been interesting, and it's about to get uh, and remain uh, interesting. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, in the chair in front of you, under it, there is a Bible. And if you could grab that and turn to page 557. Um, and uh, you'll be able to track along with us. We're just going to walk through this passage of Scripture, read it, and talk about the verses and seek to apply them. So um, if you could open up there, 557, 1 Corinthians 10. We're going to begin in verse 14, and let's listen now for God's Word to us. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel, are not those who eat the sacrifices participating in the altar? What do I imply then, that food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Let's pray. God, we come to you today and posture ourselves as learners. We posture ourselves uh, in humility as those who need your word. And Lord, we may have brought in any number of needs, challenges, burdens, and problems today, but we believe that you have something to say to each of us from this text. And I pray that you would bridge the 2,000-year cultural gap and that you would speak to us clearly from this passage. And I pray that you would show us the work of Jesus, our Savior. Lord, thank you for the time of singing this morning, just to sing about what you have done for us. Nothing but your blood do we trust in. And we come before your throne with confidence because of Christ. And we are amazed by your grace and all of these truths. Now, I just pray, Lord, that as we read your word, that the same stirring of our affections would occur as we hear your word, apply your word. So, Lord, lift our hearts Uh, To you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I read a story a number of years ago uh, about an all-girls school, uh, and I believe it was in the UK, and uh, they were having a problem. And the problem was, uh, at the school, the girls who were, I don't know what they call it in the UK, but were getting about middle school aged, 
were starting to wear lipstick. And uh, they, they thought that it was really cute, and that may have been the word they used, but they thought it was really cute for them to put on, apply their lipstick, this newfound, uh, you know, sort of uh, adult uh, experience, apply it in the bathroom, and then pucker up and kiss the mirror so that it would leave lip prints on the mirror. So at the end of the day, the custodian would come into a mirror just filled with, you know, kiss marks, lip mark, lipstick all over the mirror. And uh, so the principal addressed, you know, the girls, we can't do this. This is wrong. It's, it's causing a mess. It's, it's just making a mess for someone else to clean up. Please stop it. Well, they didn't stop it. The girls just continued to put on their lipstick, uh, giggle, and kiss the mirror, and leave their, their mark, leave their imprint in the mirror. So the principal, uh, wise principal, called uh, the girls that she thought were the offenders, brought all the girls into the bathroom. And said, ladies, I know we've asked you multiple times and you continue just to kiss the mirror. And uh, this creates a tremendous amount of work for the custodian. And so what we're going to do is I want you to see how difficult it is to clean this mirror so, uh, so that you will appreciate uh, what, what you're, the burden you're putting on the custodian. So the custodian got his long squeegee. And he went and he dipped it in the toilet and he swirled it around and he wiped it up against the edge of the toilet and the lid of the toilet and shook it out a little bit and put it on the mirror and wiped across the mirror and turned the blade and wiped the water off the mirror as they watched in absolute horror. And there was never again a lip mark on the mirror. They thought their practice was innocent enough. But once they realized what was happening behind the scenes that they didn't understand, then all of a sudden what seemed like no big deal was toxic. It was unclean. I mean, it was defiling that they were putting their lips up against that water. And here in really a far more concerning, far more graphic, far more alarming scenario, Paul is showing the Corinthians what they think is not such a big deal is a serious defiling event in their lives. To eat meat in an idol's temple, to eat a meal in the temple of an idol is such a, a defiling and a dangerous practice. This section we just read about is, is we're coming to the conclusion next week of a discussion that started way back in chapter eight. And it all has to do with the Corinthians eating meat that was offered to idols. And Paul has said the meat in itself is not contaminated just because it was offered to an idol and then sold in the marketplace. That meat is not in and of itself defiling. You are free to eat that. But now he is communicating to them a real concern. He's communicating at love. Look at verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, he is, he is communicating from a heart of love. He's respecting them. Verse 15, I speak as to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say. So he, he's saying, look, he's speaking out of love. He's speaking reasonably to them, but he is speaking very clearly to them in verse 14, flee 
from idolatry. Flee from it. Why? Because what you think is just a meal, what you think just eating a meal as a Christian in a pagan temple at a worship service, while you think this is no big deal, verse 20, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons... That's what's going on behind the scene and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons, verse 20. So this whole affair, he's now coming and saying, look, it's fine to buy meat and eat meat, but when you do it in this way, when you eat the meat in this context, it's it's very very serious and you must flee that. Now, this whole scenario seems very strange to us. I mean, it's very foreign. Um, if, if you are new, or even if you're not new to the Bible, this seems really primitive, uh, completely unrelatable to our lives today. I mean, we read this and go, wow, you know, that's interesting, but I'm not sure I'm going to make my bills, you know, uh, this month. How does this relate to me. I mean, the reality is there's probably no one here that between last Sunday and this Sunday has been in a religious service where someone slit the throat of a goat, sacrificed it, cooked it, chanted before a statue to some pagan god, and then following that had a meal and then participated in some kind of sexual immorality to go along with it at the temple. I think it's safe. I don't know everyone here. I think it's safe to say no one's done that in the last week. And that's exactly what's happening in Corinth. So we look at that and go, well, I don't know. That just seems so so distant, so strange to me. But if we look at the values of Corinth and what Paul is addressing here, I think we're going to see that there are some bridges to our culture and to our world and to our lives that could not be more relevant. Uh, David Garland, in his commentary on 1 Corinthians, writes about the background to the passage that we just read. And I want to read this to you. It's two paragraphs, so it's a little more than I would read in a normal quote. But I want you to listen to the language he uses as a scholar describing this period of history. And I want you to listen to some common themes and see how far away they really are from American culture. He says, Paul's insistence on exclusive loyalty, and that's what he's insisting on. You cannot go to demon dinners. You must worship Jesus alone if you're a believer in Christ. Paul's insistence on exclusive loyalty to a religion was something uncommon in paganism. People were accustomed to joining in the sacrificial meals of various deities, none of which required an exclusive relationship. The Greek world was a great religious melting pot, and tolerance and syncretism reflected the spirit of the times. The Greeks and later the Romans were very tolerant in their attitude toward the kaleidoscope of other religions and cultures. They understood that every nation had its own ancestral traditions, its own temples and gods, and that worship of these gods was part of everyday life. For practical reasons, the Romans did not want to alienate the regional deities within the empire and did not insist that everyone worship Roman gods. They basically said, you may continue in worship of your gods and goddesses, we'll worship them as well, and you can worship ours. That way, no one's gods will be slighted. Most people honored gods whom they thought were useful. Some believed that there were, was safety in numbers and worshipped a smorgasbord of deities. The more gods that were honored, the better their chances of success in life. 
Paul radically rejects all such syncretism and anything that might even hint of it. His attempt to convince the Corinthians that the Christians' fellowship with Christ restricted them from any association with other gods was not an easy task. Christian parents who have had to forbid their teenage children from attending something that the parents recognize as fundamentally opposed to Christian values may best understand the difficulty. How do they explain to the children why they may not participate when all their friends are going and they will be left out and perhaps ostracized? Now look at the context he's talking about here. The Corinthian world was a pluralistic world. A world where other people's gods were affirmed and actually worshipped and benefited from other people's gods. They were also interestingly pragmatic. His comment was, they worshipped gods that were useful. What's he saying? It works for you, that's okay. It works for me, that's fine. Whatever I need to do that works for me and brings success in my life is to be affirmed. That was their culture. They weren't into heavy doctrine. Most of these pagan worship festivals or experiences were not so heavily doctrinally oriented. They were celebrating what works. Their world was spiritual. It wasn't just restricted to a one particular religious practice. We, we benefit from all spiritual experiences. We coexist in Corinth with all experiences being equally valid. We may not be in our culture killing goats and chanting before a statue, but when we live in a world that is pluralistic and incredibly tolerant and pragmatic and spiritual, and that's exactly what Corinth was all about. Exclusive loyalty to one God was a foreign concept in Corinth. It was a counter-cultural practice in Corinth. And I believe in our culture today, we are obviously as Christians to be respectful of all people. We are to be gracious and winsome and loving and serving of all people. We are to see every person regardless of whom they worship or how they worship or what they do. We, we are to see them as created in the image of God and valuable and in this country, we affirm the freedom of people to worship differently. That's our, that's the, the, thankfully, the governmental structure that we live under, where people have a freedom to practice their religion. And so we celebrate and thank God for that gift through civil government. Uh, so we are affirming and tolerant in, a, in that sense, for sure, and are, called, and are called to be. But what he's saying here is that we are called as Christians to also say there is one God, there is one way of salvation, and we are committed to that way, to following Jesus alone. That's the point of this passage, that following Jesus requires exclusive allegiance to him and his people. That is a crazy idea in Corinth. That is a crazy idea in America today. That following Jesus means an exclusive allegiance, an exclusive loyalty to him alone and to his people in an unusual way. And to explain that, what he does is he does a fascinating thing. He takes them to the Lord's Supper. 
And he says the Lord's Supper or communion or the Lord's table or the Eucharist, it's known in a number of different terms. The word Eucharist means Thanksgiving. Uh, So it's known in a number of different ways. We typically just call it the Lord's Supper or communion. But he points to that experience and says, that testifies to what I'm talking about to you. So there's two things I want to talk about the Lord's Supper, because this is what he talks about in the passage. One is the Lord's Supper. It honors our exclusive union with Christ. And that may be of something you've never thought of. We're we're going to receive the Lord's Supper when I'm done talking here. But... uh, It celebrates an exclusive union with Christ. I'm not sure if you've thought about that aspect of it before. And it also celebrates an exclusive union with his people. So let's talk about this exclusive union that makes the Lord's Supper incompatible with idol feasts, which is what he's talking about here. Verse 16, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? The word translated participation, I don't ever, rarely, not ever because I'm about to do it. I rarely use Greek words in a, in a sermon, but this word's known oftentimes in, Christ, in, Christ, in the Christian church, so I'll mention it. It's the word koinonia, koinonia, which we usually uh, call fellowship. Now it's translated here, participation. The cup, cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a fellowship in the blood of Christ? A participation in the blood of Christ, a sharing in the blood of Christ, we could say. These, these all mean the same thing, essentially. A, this is where we get the word communion, a communion with the blood of Christ as well. We often think of fellowship as something we share with other people, and it certainly is. But here he's saying it's, it's also a sharing in the blood of Christ. It means essentially to share with someone else. And he's saying the cup of blessing, which refers to the, the cup that Jesus took at the Last Supper and a cup we receive in, in the Lord's Supper, that, that this is a sharing for us. It is a participation. It is recognizing the union with Christ that we enjoy. And he doesn't tell us how this happens. What, he doesn't tell us what the participation, doesn't go into all the details. There's certainly been a lot of speculation and denominations have split over our kind of understanding the nature of communion, even at points. But he doesn't tell us the details of it, but he does communicate that something is happening when we receive communion that is a participation with Christ. It is a it is a powerful event. It is a remembrance, yes. It is a, an experience and a fellowship as well. And so he's saying something is happening. In the next chapter, he says that when we receive the cup, that we are receiving a participation in the new covenant. Look in chapter 11, verse 25. So if you're using one of the Bibles we just got, I don't know if that changes the page or not, but just go to the next chapter. The heading will be 11. And then go down to the verses, count down, you know, uh, follow down to verse 25. And this is what it says. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper. This is talking about Jesus as the last supper. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. This is the new covenant in my blood. So he's saying there is something, when Jesus initiates the Lord's Supper, he says this is... This is a new relationship. It is a new covenant. A covenant is a binding. It's much stronger than a contract. A covenant is a binding relational commitment. 
It is a binding relational commitment. And he says, when you receive communion, this, this speaks of a supreme loyalty, a, an exclusive bonding, binding commitment. And we don't use that word much in our culture, except maybe uh, like with a marriage, a marriage covenant, you take vows in a wedding, you take vows to a covenant, which is a binding, serious covenant. It's not a loose contract, or it shouldn't be, a loose contract, uh, a handshake agreement. It is a binding uh, covenant. And he's saying that's what's happening in, that Christ has done for us. When he gave his life, he was establishing a binding covenant. Chapter 11, verse 25. And this cup represents that covenant with Christ at the cost of his life. Because of his love for us, Jesus sacrificed himself. He died on the cross, an innocent man, the God man, perfectly God, perfectly man. He died on the cross. He took our sins upon himself and paying the price for our sins to erase our guilt so that if we turn from our sins and we believe in him, we, we trust him as our savior to make us right with God, then all the blessings of his sacrifice become yours. And that's why this is called a cup of blessing. It is a thanks to God, a blessing to God, but it also represents his blessing to us as well in this covenant. When you receive the cup, it is, it is, it is remembering, it is recognizing that he has joined himself to you. It is, it, he is the one who upholds the covenant. It is a covenant about him initiating with us. It is a covenant about his union, uh, our union with him because of what he has done. It is a covenant because of Christ's blood, because of his faithfulness, not because of our faithfulness, because of what Jesus has done. It is a covenant that is so strong, so permanent, so deep, so tight, so solid that we can be at peace with him. That we can realize there's nothing I can do to make myself right with God. He did it all. I am in relationship with God because God came to earth to rescue us by giving his own son, by shedding his blood. It, it wasn't just the physical sacrifice, which was gruesome and painful, but it was what it represented. It was his taking our sins upon himself and being judged for our sins in our place so that by his resurrection, he establishes a new relationship, a binding relationship that he makes with his people. Whoever will believe, if you will turn from your sins and believe, you will be joined to Christ. You will be one with Christ. You will be in exclusive relationship with God Almighty because of what he has done. You will have new life, an eternal life. You will have a new reason for living today and a new eternal life, all because what he has done. This is what, it's a participation and a sharing. So receiving the, the Lord's Supper is, is serious. It is a privilege. It, it is a, a living remembrance of what he has done for us and a renewal of what he has done in our hearts and in our minds. It freshly focuses us on what Christ has done, what he has initiated, that he is holding us and this is how he addresses don't go down to the title uh, to the temple and eat meat offered to idols this is how he addresses it he says the cup of blessing that we bless is it not a participation in the blood of Christ 
And this is something, there's a, there's a principle here that we talked about last week that's very important to get. And the principle is that when in the New Testament, when God forbids something, he doesn't just forbid and say, you can't do that. He's calling us to turn to a much more glorious alternative. He's calling us to turn away from sin and death and turn to the one who is life. And so here he doesn't just say, hey, there's a no entry, a stay out sign in front of all the temples. I just want to make it difficult with you for your family. When the family's going down and doing it, now that you're a Christian, you say, I'm not going to go. Sorry, I can't join you. I can't participate in that. I want to make it really hard for you. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, look, the goal of this is not just keep out. It is come to Jesus. He's saying you have an exclusive covenant with Christ and the Lord's Supper expresses that covenant. You are participating in something that is gloriously, indescribably unique. In verse 18, he says, consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar. So he's saying, look, the same was with Israel. They were participating with Yahweh. They were participating with God when they would offer sacrifice you're participating with Christ and what he's done for you when you receive communion. He's saying the same thing there. It's just like in the Old Testament, verse 19, what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? It's not about the meat. It's not about the sacrifice in the temple. They're not anything. I'm not saying idols are even real. Earlier he said there are no other gods. I'm not saying they're real gods. I'm implying that what pagan sacrifice, verse 20, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. That's the problem. There is a real participation that happens. You cannot partake of the Lord's table, of the table of the Lord, of the table of demons. He's saying these are incompatible. Now, he previously said there are no idols. So he's not saying don't go down there because there really is a living sun goddess. And I want you to worship me and not her. There really is a fertility God that could bless you and could help you conceive. I don't want you to worship the fertility God. I want you to worship me. He's not saying that the other gods are real um, at all. He's not not, not saying there's multiple gods in a real sense. But what he's saying is there are real spiritual powers. In that temple, there are real dark forces. There are malevolent spiritual beings uh, present. There are demons. There are satanic powers. The Bible describes... uh, Our enemy is Satan. He's a liar. He's a deceiver. He's a spiritual power. And he has a a horde of powers alongside him called demons in the Bible. Uh, They are fallen angels that once worshiped God and turned away and now uh, seek to hinder the people of God and seek to blind unbelievers. And so he said, demons are present in the pagan sacrifice and and the pagan worshipers may not even know this. They may sense a presence and think it's a God. They they may not know what it is. They're, They're just fallen demons. And when you are there and you're eating that food, you are interacting spiritually in a religious service. It's not the meat. You're in a religious service. You're participating. It's a genuine participation spiritually. There's something spiritual happening there and you're interacting with demons is what you're doing. And so you can't worship the Lord and have an exclusive relationship with Christ, which the Lord's Supper represents, and do the same with demons. This is his point. He wants you to experience the glory of knowing and being with Christ. That's his point. 
So when we come to communion, we are sharing in Christ, we're enjoying what he's doing, what he's done for us, but we're, here's what we're also saying. I belong to you alone. Every time you take the bread, every time you take the cup, you are saying, you have made a covenant with me and I am fallen and I break that covenant regularly because I'm unfaithful and I sin. But you never break that covenant. You are a faithful covenant God and I'm coming to you today and I'm saying, by faith, I belong to you alone. That's what he's saying. That's the whole illustration here. That in a, in a world of many gods in many ways, we are saying Jesus Christ is the way the truth, and the life, and I am in union with him. And there is an exclusivity. We are shouting an exclusivity. We're saying no to all other gods when we receive communion. All other powers, not just statues. Probably it's not very common to be worshiping a statue in our day. I mean, it happens, but it's not as common. But an idol is not just a statue. An idol is any substitute for God. And we all have God's substitutes in our lives. It's where we go for comfort. It's where we go for security. It's where we go when God is not enough. It's where we go to make us happy. It's where we go to find purpose and where we go to find excitement. It's where we go to feel special and needed and loved and important. It's where we go apart from Jesus to pursue life in someone or something else. So every time we receive communion, we are or should be, according to this passage, saying, this is the cup of blessing. I'm participating with Christ. That's why I don't participate with idols. So I'm saying no to money as my God today. When I'm receiving the cup and the bread, I'm saying, I trust you, Jesus. I don't trust money. I don't trust my own self-sufficiency. I'm trusting you. I'm turning from everything else that, that I think brings me security. And I'm saying, you're my security. I've cut my ties with every other source of heart security. I'm not trusting my good works. I, I'm not going to trust the idol of moralism, my performance. I'm saying, I can't perform. It's your blood and your body. I'm exclusively yours by faith. I'm not following the idol of good works. I'm not following the idol of sex. I'm not following the idol of power. I'm not following the idol of success. I'm saying, Lord, I'm not looking to anything or anyone for, for my life's success. I'm saying my success, my fruitfulness is found in you. It's an exclusive claim that is powerful, powerful. I'm not looking for comfort. I'm not, I'm, you are my only comfort in life and death, as the catechism says. I'm not looking for comfort elsewhere. I'm not going to idolize a person. My security and my well-being cannot and will not be based on what he or she does or does not do. God, I'm coming to you in communion today, and I'm saying, I, by faith, please help me not live an emotional roller coaster that goes up and down, tying my well-being to that person. I'm tying my well-being to you because you're unchanging in your covenant-keeping God. And this is the new covenant that you've made with us. Now, this is not, it's interesting. I've talked this whole time about Lord's Supper. This is not even a passage about the Lord's Supper. It's a passage about exclusive commitment and devotion to God and why you can't serve other gods. But he uses the illustration of communion to, to explain it, and I think it, it, think it opens up a new vista that you're committed to me, Lord. You're faithful to me. Now I'm coming before you and recognizing my unfaithfulness, asking your forgiveness, and asking for power to hold you alone as my God.
So the Lord's Supper honors our exclusive union with God and it honors our exclusive union with his people as well. He does say that. Look at verse 16. The bread that we break is not, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So he's saying there's one loaf, it's broken into small pieces, and we all take it, we're all representative, that that represents one God with many people. And so we, there's one Jesus, but everybody who's a believer in Jesus, we are connected to one another. The point he's making here is not only are you in union with Christ, but you are in union with his people. The, the cup of blessing that we bless, the bread that we break, many pieces from one loaf, many believers in one body of Christ. So his body was broken so that we could be right with God, so, but so that we could be right with one another too. His body was broken that we may be one. Just as there is a spiritual participation with the benefits of what Christ has done for us, in communion, a spiritual fellowship with him, a spiritual fellowship in the beauty of the redemption that comes in Christ. There is also a sort of a mysterious union with his people that we recognize at that point as well. So we're sharing commonly. Yes, you have a father. If you're a Christian, God is your father, but he's my father as well. And we're one, we're brothers and sisters because he's our father. We're joined spiritually. And this, that broken bread, that recognizes that recognizes that I'm not an independent, that I'm not just out pursuing spiritual experience. It's saying not only is Christ exclusive and I can't worship and don't want to worship other gods, but it's also saying I have a unique relationship with the people of God that excels all other fellowships. That's the word sharing all other fellowships. I may have good friends that don't know Christ. I may have dear, close, intimate family members that don't know Christ. Uh, I may have coworkers that I love and are buddies with that don't know Christ. But the reality is that the people who know Christ, I am spiritually joined to them in a unique way above all other fellowships. And so my, my connection with God's people, I'm not just talking about this church. Obviously, if you're from another church, your connection intimately with God's people is, is there and not here. I get that. I'm not speaking about this local church alone for sure. But wherever you are walking out your faith, that's why the local church is so important. It's because we are joined together. The, his body is broken that we may be one. And when we're not joined with other believers, um, there's something hypocritical about our life because it, it doesn't represent the gospel, what Jesus did. It doesn't, bro- it doesn't represent broken body that, so that we could be one. It represents he, he had his body broken and we're still broken from each other. So it doesn't reflect the true beauty, power, wonder of the gospel. We're not just, in a minute, we'll pass the elements. And when we receive the bread and the cup together, we're not just like... We're not just sitting among a collection of individuals. Even if you're new here and you're a Christian and you don't know people, there's still a reality that you're not, this isn't like you're just in a crowd at the movie theater. I went to a ball game the other night. It's not just like you're sitting at a ball game with a, with a stadium full of strangers. Wow, well, we're, on this, you know, we're all cheering for the same team maybe, but there's nothing that joins us in spiritually or mystically or powerfully together we, like there is in the church. We're not just observers of a meeting. We're not just, you know, fans at a game. We're not just someone sitting in a chair receiving entertainment. We're not just someone at a self-help seminar downloading a few good nuggets of wisdom that can make our life better. We are joined as one. 
That's what Jesus sees. That's what the father sees when he looks down. The father looks down and sees because of his son's broken body, Grace Church, we are one as Christians. It's powerful. And that's why if you go to an idol temple and you are worshiping demons there, you are joining yourself in spiritual fellowship with other worshipers of demons. And so he said, you, you can't. I can be friends with demon worshipers at the, idol, at the idol temple. I can be their friend. I can be their neighbor. I can have them in my house. We can, we, we can hang out together. I can share the Lord with them. But I cannot worship their God. Paul said, I, I became all things to all men that by all means I might save some. That's about building bridges with people who are unbelievers. That's by entering their world. That's by knowing them and loving them and really being human and normal in so many ways like them. It means that I'm not a weird spiritual person, but my common humanity is shared with their common humanity as people made in the image of God. But there is a line. There is a line that says, I cannot cross that line. I can become all things to all men. I can love, serve, care for, relate, but I cannot worship. I cannot pursue false gods. I cannot pursue priorities of idolatry with you. There's a place where I say, no, I have to say no. And it's in doing so that I'm a reflection of Christ. So this is what he's saying here. Don't fellowship with, can't fellowship with demons in Christ. There's an exclusive union. You can't be joined in a spiritual way with unbelievers. There's a unique, unique, exclusive allegiance to Christ. Now, this passage all started, and we'll wrap up here with a negative command. Flee idolatry. But when we read the passage, I hope we see that there is an implicit, stronger command, which is flee idolatry, but flee to Jesus. Flee to Jesus. It's, you're not penalized for having an exclusive relationship with Christ. You're not penalized for having to say no to idols. You are a chosen people. You are the one who he said last week, the, on, upon whom the ends of the ages has come. You are, we are the people of God. The spirit of God dwells in us. We are a privileged people, not because of anything we've done, but because of everything he's done in making a covenant, a new covenant with us. This isn't a hard message. This isn't a message that is restrictive. A suffer, and there, may, there may be restriction in suffering, but the heart of this message is you are privileged to come to Christ. You're privileged to commune with the creator of the universe and with the savior of your soul. You're not just doing a bunch of rules and keeping laws to be accepted by God. You are in union with him because of what he has done. So when you receive the bread and you receive the cup, it is a cup of blessing, of thanksgiving, giving that says, thank you, Lord. I joyfully, gladly say no to the fallen idols of this world. I say no to death and destruction and darkness and emptiness and isolation and emotional and spiritual pain that comes from pursuing idols. And I say yes to Jesus where there is peace and life and forgiveness and joy and fellowship both with him and his people. Yes to Jesus is what we are saying. We're saying, Lord, make there be no other allegiances. Cast down all rival allegiances. I want you and you alone. I receive you and you alone. I trust you and you alone. I worship you 
and you alone. And I love you and you alone because you first love me. And where I fail to love and where I'm chasing idols, Lord, help me. Help me through this Lord's Supper. See my heart. See what you've done for me. And flee from idolatry, fleeing into the arms of a loving Savior. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.